Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. I'm actually recording this particular interview on what is my regular small boat fishing patch, except that today I'm aboard the Fleetwood Charter Boat Blue Mink, skippered by Andy Bradbury. In some ways, this podcast links to and picks up from an earlier interview with Fleetwood veteran Frank B., who was the man responsible both for developing Fleetwood as a modern-day charter angling port and for opening up Morecambe Bay as a targeted fishery, before turning his back on the skippering side of things around the start of the 1980s by switching his allegiance to small boat fishing along the file coast. Now, I know you've made the same journey, only this time in reverse, and in terms of timing, certainly with the small boat fishing, should have had some sort of an overlap with Frank during the famous Jumbo Cod years. But you'll almost certainly be working from a very different Fleetwood as a charter port and Morecambe Bay as a fishery to the ones that Frank left behind all those years ago. Frank retired from the big boat scene just before the now infamous recessions of the Thatcher years, which very quickly saw the charter industry there nosedive from a thriving attraction with around a dozen or so boats working out of the muddy tidal inlet at Jubilee Quay to virtually nothing. Then back to the present, with you operating as the only boat from what was the port's outer fish key and is now a plush marina. Do you actually remember anything about the rise and fall of that chapter of Fleetwood's charter fishing story? Or as a small boat angler, did that period in the town's history pretty much pass you by? I actually started uh, boat fishing on the, the old charter boats in Fleetwood, the wire angler and princess Anne, operated by birds. Predominantly, as you remember back, it was dabs and occasional place. Up in the bay, you did as well get uh, an occasional reasonable coddling in the spring showing. Um, but we never seemed to sort of be come round off Cleveland or Russell to see any of the better coddling. But that did set me off, so eventually, I think it was the age of, well, I was approaching 16, to the horror of my parents, I bought this uh, 12 foot mooring. We started sort of taking it down the beach at Norbreck and balling it with a, a friend of mine down to the low water mark. And uh, obviously, as being the partner going out, he, he got the opportunity to take my trailer back up to up to the ball again. And it was then really the adventure started of, of dinghy fishing. In those days, like I say, talking the late 70s into the early 80s, you started realising the potential and the opportunity of the fish available off the coast. Um, in the spring we had the good runner place, again inside the low water mark. In the winter we had the opportunity of the cod and the jumbo cod that were showing at that time. So it was a natural progression from those early days from charter boat fishing in Fleetwood to buying my first dinghy and operating it and learning the seamanship the hard way really as it was because there was no courses or anything available then. It was all learn as you go, and some experience obviously learnt the hard way. I first got to know you when we were both launching our dinghies from the Fileboat Angling Club. I'm not sure exactly when that was, so being a bit younger than me, I'm also not sure how much of the legendary File Coast Jumbo Cod era you actually saw. What are your recollections of the fishing back then? The Jumbo Cod off the File Coast was something to look forward to. Certainly at that time, like I say, moving on from 16 upwards, so I'd changed boats from the, the moor end to a, a CJR at the time, 14-foot boat. The jumbo cod were probably a shorter period of time than what people would realise. I mean, realistically, 
I would start looking at, at the double figure fish, 20 pounders plus, round about Christmas week, and that would run on to round about the third week of February. It would be an occasion where you could come out one day and you'd bag up with cod. You'd come out the following day and you'd be lucky to have your bite. That's how critical the cod fishing was. Today, it's no different. If anything, it's just a shorter, a slightly shorter period of time. But saying that, we are fortunate that we don't get a lull like we did in those days between the winter fish and spring fish. The spring fish do seem to be arriving early. The jumbo cod, though, it, it was an experience um, I would hope would return, and I, and I think it probably will. Going out on a dinghy on my own, I, I remember many occasions where you'd have a bite on on one rod and you're fishing a couple of rods off the boat and you'd hook the fish as your other rod was about to go over the side so you found yourself putting your foot on the butt on one rod while striking and reeling in a fish on your other rod by the time that one's in and on the boat you're reeling in your other fish and it was pretty persistent like that at times it, it was a case of all or nothing you'd come out and you'd have a really terrific day or you'd come out and you might see an handful up to 15 pound but certainly in my experience you know we've, we've had many a 20 to 30 pound fish through the 70s and the 80s um, they, they did start to tail off and go down a bit in size through the 90s and sad to say 2000 on I think in the last sort of seven years from 2010 the biggest fish I bought this boat has been uh, 16 and a quarter pound Obviously, it nosedived and quite suddenly into a period of average to poor cod fishing winters. Have you any thoughts on why those fish were there in the first place, and equally important, why they are not there today? Looking back historically off the Fylde Coast, if you look back to a, written, a book written by William Thornber, who was a historian at Blackpool, in the 1800s apparently the coast was awash with Addock, and in all the years fishing I've been out of Blackpool and Fleetwood I can honestly say I've never seen an addict caught. It's funny you should mention haddock. I've never actually seen one off this course myself but I do know that several years ago one of the members of the Blackpool Boat Angling Club down at South Shore brought two into the scales during a club match. They say at that period of time that the haddock were that abundance that they were literally on on the beach at Squires Gate on Arrowside and uh, just like they could have done today they disappeared overnight never to be seen again the cod I think it's a slightly different prospect um, talking to one of the fisheries officers in Fleetwood uh, he says that the cod that we actually get off the file coast are more nomadic um, they're not actually a stock of cod that would annually come into the coast it's more of a spur that breaks away from a main shoal of fish further afield that would winter here just as unexplainable as the, the break away and, and come off the coast, they can unfortunately leave the coast and rejoin the shoal. It is said though that this is something that, that does happen over a period of time. So who's to say that we won't get the jumbo cod again? Because I ask at this time 2010 has been a better year for coddling. Certainly you know for a good many years now we started catching them in July and they've been showing an increase in numbers I'm happy to say we've come to November and there's many a day really that we're getting quite a few up to sort of three four pounds so this could be it really. When you say that you think these fish may come back at some stage 
what are you basing this on? History. Again, again if you talk to people that, that were uh, fishing off this coast during the war, the cod were prolific, the cod were large, and then it nosedived after the war. At the time, a lot of the old guys said it, it was uh, the commercial fishing, because during the wartime there wasn't the commercial activity by trawling. Following the war, there was a big commercial activity again, and, and it was the same excuse really, this is used today, that the bigger fish was cleaned out by commercial overfishing. I don't think that is so actually, you know, it, it just seems historically a cycle that we're going through. I have heard on occasion that it's a cycle that, that may be over 20-30 years of, from peak to trough. Um, again, time will tell. Do you not think that commercial pressure will play some part in restricting Irish sea cod, achieving those sorts of sizes ever again? I know there are less commercial boats about these days, but won't that just allow there to be more fish sharing the same food resource, with the effect that it will then be difficult for fish generally to really pile on the weight? Talking to commercial fishermen, and knowing the number of boats that did operate at Fleetwood once over, it could actually have a negative effect of size of fish without having the commercial side of it. That's based on that you could have a sea full of fish but with only the, the same amount of food for them to feed on, smaller fish, which much as the same happened apparently in the Solent many years ago with the taupe fishing where there was a lot of taupe killed expecting there to be a, a, an uptake of, of other fish in the area but what actually happened is the size of fish went down because there was more fish but less food so there's always going to be an argument about overfishing or underfishing it's, a, it's got to be a balance As you said earlier you cut your angling teeth from small boats around the file coast where you've enjoyed a great deal of success but I know that you haven't only fished off the Lancashire coast, and that not all of your fishing was done purely for pleasure. There is, or at least there was, a competitive streak in you, and a very successful one at that. Again, it's sort of a progression. At the time as well, I was heavily doing the uh, CIU League, which was Club and Institute, which uh, generally over the year had a number of beach matches. So it, it sort of created a, a competition side to me that continued with the boat fishing which we started going afield oh, we had success over at Hartlepool the top time competition we won that one fishing the Stenner International off Wexford I think the 15 years that we'd uh, fished that one I'd won it three times been runner up a number of times generally sort of in the top six which was where obviously where we like to be yeah so also Cardigan Bay the Mid Wales Development uh, Competition uh, runner up twice there over the years as well we've fished uh, Kinsale, Killybegs, obviously Dally Bay in Scotland for the place. So really it, it was a natural progression as well. Instead of just being going for, for size and quality of fish, it was, it was then becoming uh, an obsession of to get as many different species of fish as you could. That's transferred over now to the chartering side where many of the clubs today instead of just fishing for a solitary big fish on the boat between themselves try to fish for the the number of species available we've probably got to an average of close to 40 species in the year 
the good old days of the 70s and the 80s of the jumbo cod we, we'd have probably been lucky to have a dozen species in a year so um, some things they say like are better but uh, worse sorry but other things are certainly better excellent credentials for becoming a successful charter boat skipper but with such a heavy involvement with the small boat fishing scene what was the final nudge that persuaded you to cross codes so to speak that's a that's a very good question I did actually think probably the mid 1980s of uh, going into chartering I did actually do a, a local uh, ticket um, to operate a boat but when the time came I ended up buying a bigger dinghy <laughs> so I guess what it was it was at that particular time I was happy doing the competition fishing work-wise as well I was I was probably in, in a job I was too set in in the sense of I've been there from doing an apprenticeship this was in the newspaper industry and it's the same in many jobs it was the only life I really knew and it was a big step to leave that to actually go into what we're doing now it actually came about very suddenly really leaving the newspapers was that uh, with the new technology and everything else there was a, a thing over the years of people being made redundant and the few people who were actually skilled in the job left finding themselves inheriting other people's jobs to the degree where I was literally a nervous wreck so it was a case of leave the newspaper industry for health reasons and go into a job where you don't even know what's happening tomorrow <laughs> Yeah. Some might say psychotic. <laughs> Morecambe Bay as a fishery and Fleetwood as a base both have a lot going for them, particularly in terms of shelter from the prevailing southwesterly wind, which often keeps the foul coast dinghy stuck on shore. But it also has its downside. Big spring tides, for example, are difficult to fish when you're confined inside the bay. So although you might have some degree of shelter, you can't always usefully use it. What then are the plus and minus points of being Fleetwood based? I think the plus points is definitely that we have a continual conveyor belt of, of fish over the year. It's not somewhere where you would come out fishing for a type of fish all year round. It's constantly on the change. You can be coming out in the winter, as we said, with the coddling, the whiting, the dabs, etc. In the spring you've got the, the early run of the thornbacks, the place, followed by Tope, Smoothhound, uh, Bolos, you know, the, the list is really endless now, the opportunities available to us out of Fleetwood. As you say about large tides, the spring tides and, and the neap tides, I would say that the neap tides, yes, do give you more opportunity about where you can go and fish, but really it's only the west, southwest, west, the west, northwest that are critical where anything really above a force four if you know shelter so unfortunately you're cancelled on a southerly wind the fishing available in Morecambe Bay particularly in the spring and summer with the place you're sheltered so it could be blowing force four or five and rough off Russell and you'd be quite comfortably fishing in six or eight foot of water for place into the bay and catching them but the biggest factor in the bay and the, and the biggest mistake that people can make is going too deep a water. The majority of fish in the bay, place, bass, etc., do come from the shallow water. What's it like also being based in a marina, which while it's safe and secure, also has its downside? This morning, for example, we picked up at 7am after what was officially the coldest November night on record. 
I presume that you'll have been here in the middle of the night to get the boat out due to the restrictions placed on you by the lock gates. I know you didn't actually sleep on the mooring last night, but you have done before today. Aside of charter skippering, potential future charter boat operators wearing rose-tinted glasses don't ever consider, as indeed won't most anglers. On top of this, you've got decisions to make over the weather forecast, and from time to time, as with all vehicles, have mechanical problems to deal with. To one extent then, does being based inside Fleetwood Marina control what you do? You've certainly got to be dedicated. <laughs> Fleetwood Marina is a very, like say, secure place to be. It's very useful and comfortable in the pontoons that you have there. As far as the fishing base, though, it's very unfortunate with the locking times that we only, on a good tide, have an hour and a half each side of high water, which doesn't really fit in with the, with most people's lives of fishing. So, generally on the charters, we try and keep the pickup times between 6 a.m. in the morning and 12 lunchtime. Some might be a little bit before six, but generally six to twelve pickup times of the time we go for. The unfortunate side for me is to get out of the marina for a six a.m. pickup. Usually entails leaving the dock, anything sort of around about midnight, one o'clock in the morning, going back home for another four hours sleep before having to get the boat out of the dock channel before that dries for the six o'clock pickup. So people sort of sometimes moan about getting up early for a six o'clock. But uh, my day usually starts around about midnight on those. Likewise, on the on the late pickups, it, it might mean coming back and taking the boat back into the marina at uh, eleven, half past eleven, even midnight. It does involve as well once a fortnight dropping the tide between the lates and starting back on the early again. Um, but generally, you know, with the weather patterns, you do obviously get your time off as well. So, you know, a fine day is definitely a bonus. I'd like you then to take us through a typical day in your life in terms of preparation because a lot of sea anglers see charter skippering as the ultimate job. I often get asked myself why I don't make the move across, out at sea every day pursuing your hobby and getting paid for it. But I know it isn't like that at all and a lot of people simply don't realise what sort of a life charter skippering actually is. To my mind it takes a very special kind of person. It's not just about the fish particularly as you rarely ever get to catch them yourself anyway. You need the right temperament, good man management skills and a very understanding bank manager too for those long periods lost due to the weather. Well like we've just said there, the day doesn't start when people get on the boat, the day starts a good many hours before. You always have your preliminary checks like you would, uh, oil, water, even indeed filling the boat up with diesel. Um, when you're running on a continual basis, you've got to make sure you've got that, uh, you know, the fuel. So this morning, for instance, just to keep me topped up, I did bring 50 litres of diesel down with me, which uh, which meant carrying 25 litres in one hand. That gets thrown into the tank just to to maintain it, really. Otherwise, you find yourself sort of half a day sort of transporting diesel to the boat which is a waste of a day and in all this time as well you've got to keep your wife happy in that the time that you're on the boat isn't time spent with her so you get part of it as well where she's saying like you're not you're not spending enough time on that boat so um, you, you try to sort of compromise and do what you can in between so really it's preliminary checks uh, make sure the boat's safe and secure for the day then you're annually you've got to take her out of the water and um, coming up onto the beach has its drawbacks where you get the wear on the keel which has to be constantly repaired on an annual basis the painting as well the general upkeep 
Uh, as part of being a, a licensed boat to 60 miles, life jackets have to have lights on, which all have an expiry date, which have to be renewed. The life buoy on the side of the boat have the, the lights on, they have to be renewed. The life raft has to be renewed annually. It's just generally sort of not just the fishing side of it, it it's the red tape that you have to make sure is correct. But at the end of the day, this red tape was brought in for the safety of the anglers to make sure that charter boat skippers were doing their job. And it's not just a case of anglers coming out, you taking the money off them, and thanks very much. They, they have to have a safe environment. And let's not forget mechanical wear and tear, plus costly breakdowns, which also need to be factored into the equation. There is indeed. 2009 was a particularly bad year for me. We did have a bit of a leak between the um, heat exchanger where the metal had gone porous at the end so we were getting a transfer of seawater into the coolant which caused the uh, timing cover to uh, corrode and to cut a long story short we ended up with a sump full of water which ends up with the head off. A full sort of engine breakdown really which waiting for parts or one thing or another was out of the water for about three weeks. These are unforeseen there's nothing you could really do about it. You wouldn't know that a metal had uh, gone porous inside. Just an unfortunate event, really. So it's a double whammy in that it costs you money to put the problem right, while at the same time the wages needed to pay for it dry up until you get the job done. That's quite correct. It's, uh, it's certainly a job where you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. You have to sort of keep on and, as, as the old saying is, make hay while the sun shines. These days, from a chartering perspective, you pretty much got Fleetwood and Morecambe Bay all to yourself. Previously, there had been a dozen or so boats operating, but now it's all down to you. Are you still able to find good numbers of everything, including passengers, that the area was once famous for, or had things changed, or maybe even worse still, gone into decline? The number of charter boats out of Fleetwood... Uh it would, I mean, up to sort of two, three years back, there was three charter boats operating out of Fleetwood. I wouldn't really say that, that passenger number-wise, there's really any difference. We can serve, you know, people sort of through the week, Monday to Friday, as well as the weekends, and people take advantage of that. It's a tricky question, but people, if they want to go fishing, they've only got to pick up the phone. They sometimes might have to wait a week or two but I'm sure that we can fit them in. It does show nationally, though, what a, a wonderful job it is, though, by the number of people that are not doing it. So it, it's not all a good thing, although it's, uh, you know, if you've been a seasoned angler, it's the ultimate job to have. It, it isn't always the fantastic job that people think it is, because you do have bad days as well as good. You have days when weather isn't quite as good as others. It, it isn't always sunny and flat, calm seas. What about species mix? Has the balance there changed in any way? Are the species available now that were not present before, putting a changing emphasis on how you plan your trips? The Connolly now are on a, a shorter season, that's uh, what they used to be. I mean, generally we, we could expect the cod to sort of mid-February, third week of February. Now I would say they're all but finished by the end of January. That said, in, in the last number of years, we have started picking place up mid-February. In the past, I think you would have found that there had been a lull between the cod leaving in the middle of February to the place arriving in April. So over the year, it is more consistent. There are more fish to be had. Indeed, the thornback rays do show there as well if the weather's quite mild. 
if it's not then you know they'll show up at usual times around about April in shore now rather than in the bay. I was intending to ask you about the thornback situation. Nationally rain numbers now appear to be historically low yet the River Mersey just down the way is currently full of the things. Has there been any sort of revival out in the bay over the old marks such as the cricket pitch that could in the past always be relied upon to produce the goods? Or do you perhaps no longer visit these marks, preferring to keep pace with changing circumstances? Well, it's like, well, to a degree there, yes, um, we could go and fish Morecambe Bay, but the thornbacks have seemed to have relocated rather than, than declined. In the summer now, you can fish within half a mile of the low water mark of Cleveland and, uh, and pick quite a number up. Further offshore, if you start going a mile and a half out, you start seeing fish of 15, 18 pounds. So. I don't think it's so much that there's been a decline of, of the rays, it's more of a relocation, which, as an old man once said, they've got fins, they can go where they want. The last time I was out with you, the plan had been to motor over to Walney Island to try for a mix of species out over the rough ground, but the sheer numbers of taupe in the area that day put paid to that idea. Is that still the case? Tell us a little bit about the local taupe fishing scene. Tremendous, tremendous, as it is on this side of the bay. I mean, Tulp, fortunately, is a fish that if we get a party specifically want to fish for, it isn't a problem. Generally, the Tulp are showing from mid-May onwards, peaking on size round about June, July. But it's certainly not a fish either side of the bay that you're going to struggle to, to, to catch. The problem sometimes is actual bait to catch the Tulp. If the water's a bit mucky, then we're not going to, uh, we're not going to get the... Um, the talk we have to buy the fish. I did actually go up on the bow this summer with a scratching mackerel rig, two little tiny bits of mackerel on, hooked into a tope on the bottom around about, I would estimate about 10 to 15 pound and just as my top hooks coming clear of the water I had a, another tope around about 35 pound take the top hook. So uh, you can imagine you've got two, five feathers and two tope and about 15 pound mainline. Needless to say, I, I had a set of feathers with only three hooks on rather than the five. You've mentioned smooth hounds. Although this is now a well-established species along the file coast, it hasn't always been that way. And to get the best out of them does require some measure of specialisation, particularly with regard to bait choice, the best of which is crab. What advice then would you give to prospective clients wanting to take advantage of this very exciting potential? Well, the smooth hound, again, they arrive usually around about the same time as the peel, the first peel of crab, which is around about middle of May, early May to mid-May. The number one bait, definitely, for catching smooth hound is crab. It doesn't necessarily have to be peeler, which uh, a lot of people believe. They, they will readily take hardback crabs, which falls in line, really, if you've been doing a bit of shallow water fishing and unfortunately caught a crab or two. It's not that unfortunate because you can put them in the bucket and use them for the smooth hound. I think followed by crab, probably a worm or squid cocktail. Not too far out, again you'd, you tend to sort of be within a mile of the coast. Cleveland's area is probably one of the most prolific uh, for smooth hound. And expect anything from a few pounds up to anything up to 20 pounds I would say these days. And uh, who's to say, like I said, we have seen one bigger than that so, you know, one day it the record for smooth down could be broken off the filed coast if things continue. When I first started fishing along the filed, we never saw smooth hounds, or perhaps we did but simply didn't recognise them, possibly labelling them a small tow. 
Now the things seem to be everywhere and becoming more prolific year on year. What are your thoughts on suggestions that these, plus a few other new species, are here as a result of climatic change? Particularly as smoothhounds suddenly seem to burst onto the scene a couple of seasons back to the north of us along Scotland's Solway coast. A difficult question, because as well as the smoothhound becoming prolific off the coast, I would say the gurnards have as well. Now, in the past, I think historically, if you wanted a big gurnard, then you'd have gone to North Wales. We are now seeing, like I said, gurnard up to £8. Um, we have had them at 6 and 7s, and quite a you know, regular thing now is 3s and £4 gurnards. Good eating fish, but never really noted as getting off the filed coast as we do today. The smooth down has sort of followed the same sort of line. I remember getting one probably the late 70s and I had to go and look it up what, what it was, this strange looking fish with silver speckles down its back. Um, since that day, I think on a year on year, they have indeed, like you correctly say, increased in numbers. Whether it's a, a slightly warming of coastal waters due to the, the uh, number of nuclear power stations around the coast now, I don't know because uh, the other fish that we do prolifically get up here is the bass. Something else that if you caught one, you know, it, it was something to be proud of. Now if you catch one, it's just another fish. Do you find that the bass fishing now is as good as it was several years ago, when the Shell Wharf and Heeshamuri was alive with the things, which as you might expect, then took a bit of a hammering? The biggest hammering they've probably had is from anglers themselves. The problem anglers tend to be is, is very critical about commercial people. It, it might be a little bit political what I'm saying, but they, they call the, the, the commercial men, the trawler men, but they're quite happy if the bass are available to catch as many as they can to sell them on the black market or indeed, you know, some of them if they're that confident they will license the boats to do it legally but if the bass weren't there I think they'd be the first people to moan and start pointing the finger at other areas but anglers can sometimes be their own worst enemies And is the species now going into decline compared to what was available even a couple of years ago? I wouldn't say so, no. I would say at the moment it's a fish that's on de definitely on the increase, both in numbers and size. For years we're led to believe there is a very slow-growing fish, but Morecambe Bay particularly has, had for a number of years now, get an increased number uh, and size of sort of six, eight and ten pound fish, fish that once over you'd have only dreamt about. Now you mentioned on the way out another species which interests me, but one which I don't have a lot of experience with locally, that being the Pollock. Maybe I just don't go to the right places, though to be honest, it isn't something we've ever specifically tried for either. Yet you offer this as something of a speciality option. Yeah, the Pollock, I think they came about more of an accident. It was one autumn, we was fishing off, uh, off Russell, and particularly one area, we kept on sort of picking up odd Pollock around about three, four pound and it became sort of quite consistent with, with one particular area so I did spend quite a bit of time moving a, a degree or two here or there and uh, eventually I did find the remains of what appears to be a small wreck off, uh, off Russell. Not the Galilean which, which sank in the sort of last 20 years, it, it is indeed another one. Not a lot of it left obviously, there must be a few timbers sticking up, it seems to be lying on the side but it does seem to uh, consistently old Pollock from round about late August through to November. If you get a clear day in the water, you know, nice clear water, 
put a jelly worm on, do a slow retrieve along the bottom, you can usually bag a few up to sort of six pound, which uh, once over was unheard of off Russell. You've actually just triggered something else in my mind with the mention of the Pollock. Back in the 1980s when we fished over the winter months for the big cod, maybe once or twice a season, we'd also pick up a good coal fish or two on the bottom baits. The best of these was probably into laudable figures, but I've never seen nor heard of one for years. Have you had any experiences with coal fish? No. <laughs> the only experience of coal fish really has been, um, if we venture over to Barrow in the summer months, um, you do tend to pick up a few coal fish up, up over that side, although uh, the size does tend to be small. But uh, I've never had one, in, you know, certainly in the last sort of seven or eight years uh, off Russell. How do you see the future of Fleetwood for you as a charter skipper? and as importantly, as a major player on the North West Sea angling scene for the future? Um, I would say probably that charter boat fishing is probably going to go full circle, um, as dinghy fishing is, uh, as from my perspective, looks like it's doing now. In the 1970s, if you had a 12-foot boat, then that was the norm. If you had a CGR, then you were some sort of pop star. Nowadays, boats have got bigger, where 17 foot, 18 foot is, seems to be norm for launching off the beach. On the downside, you've got a hell of a lot of cost to be sat in a driveway um, doing nothing for what could be weeks on end. And indeed, with the way the, the world is today, the price of fuel is not a cheap commodity that it once was. Summer's gone by, you, you would think nothing of steaming across barrel on a regular basis. Nowadays, I hardly see any dinghies going to Barrow. Weekends, 20, 30 years ago, you'd have seen in excess of 100 dinghies fishing off the coast. Whereas today, if you see sort of 20 or 30, then it's exceptional. Most days, it seems to be an handful. Charter boat fishing, on the other hand, it is something that's accessible to anybody, uh, novice or experienced anglers. Uh, we welcome all. We can only offer the fishing available to the time of the year and, and on the day. But I think charter boating certainly got a future because it, it would probably be more cost effective to the man on the street than laying out the 15 or so thousand pounds on a boat plus his insurance and fuel and then you need to be in a club to, you know, to launch it. So really I think there is a big future for charter boating out of Fleetwood and indeed around the UK. And do you feel that perhaps because of its strategic geographical positioning, allied to the fact that it does enjoy some shelter, it will remain a major player? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, we, we do get a lot of customers coming up from uh, the Manchester-Liverpool area, right round the Pennines, Blackburn, Burnley, Oldham, going up to Morecambe and the South Lakes. So definitely, we are increasingly as well getting people coming from further afield. For example, the, the East Coast which is quite strange for the cod fishing they have on the east coast. We are getting a number of people now coming over here, specifically to fish for the taupe during the summer. Finally, are there any regrets at making the move from dinghy angler to charter skipper? Would you still recommend it to those people out there who also see it as the ideal job, or maybe even a glamorous way of making a living? It's certainly not a glamorous way of, of making a living. It's like we said earlier, you, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. If you get a, a run of deep depressions um, and strong westerly winds, then it's not like your job, you know, where you're consistently going to get paid every Thursday or Friday or every month. 
you know you, you can actually go a week or two without any money coming in at all so you, you do have to be quite prudent to, with your money dinghy fishing like I say I, I think t to some degrees I do miss the opportunity of, of being able to have a boat on a trailer and take uh, around different parts of the UK and indeed Ireland with a charter boat you are very much one port based unless you completely up sticks and move to another part of the country so um, yeah you've, you've got to know what you're getting into and take all aspects of it before you actually do it one aspect that a lot of prospective charter skippers need to take on board is that although you do spend a lot of time out at sea little if any of that time is actually spent by you fishing no no it's, it's very true that I've, like I say I've spent my years of competition fishing no doubt I've had good years nowadays it's, it's taking uh, that experience and giving it to, to everybody else really that wants it if you get a party of novice anglers on and they get off and they've all caught fish and remember that day and they're back again and uh, you know in, in months or years to come you eventually see them coming with their own rod and reel and uh, you know they're, they're happy to do that um, so no it's not the job to go into thinking that you're going to sit outside the boat and, and fish all day because at the end of the day you're offering the service to people who are paying you to catch fish they're not coming on board the boat for you to catch the fish for them so you know you've got to make sure that the guys are catching the fish and, and they're happy doing that if they're happy I'm happy so all things considered no regrets no no not at all it, it's just it's just been a natural progression really over a period of time uh, started in the dinghies and eventually sort of ended up in a in a bigger boat if I want to put a rod out and I've got a slack party on I, I do now and again it's not a job where you're not totally fishing forever it's just you do it when the opportunity arises but not at the expense of the party that you have paid and that's probably a very good point to end on so thanks for that Andy at least by being here just to do the interview recording I was able to hide in the cabin from the bitter cutting northeasterly wind which is more than you were able to do having to go out there and work with your anglers off the deck mm -hmm.